Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Murder on Blood Mountain. Day 2008, 24-year-old Meredith Hope Emerson went hiking with her dog Ella on Blood Mountain in Georgia. She never came down. She was abducted and subsequently bludgeoned to death and decapitated by serial killer Gary Michael Hilton. By the end of the week, Hilton was identified as the killer arrested, and Meredith's remains were recovered. Lead investigator, Special Agent John Cagle of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, led the team that accomplished this rare quick resolution of this horrific crime. Now retired, Mr. Cagle joins me today to share the story of this gruesome murder on Blood Mountain. Welcome, John. Thank you, Jim. As I mentioned in the intro, uh, just before this this abduction, this case uh, fell into the uh, Georgia Bureau, uh, you were um, thinking of retiring. In the spring of 2007, I found myself uh, coming up on retirement and uh, actually contacted the personnel office with the GBI and asked them if they could project me uh, and, and see what my retirement date might be. And they did, and it was going to be April Fool's Day, 2008, April 1st. And so uh, we had just come off of some pretty high-profile cases in my office, and I was hoping for a you know, maybe calmer end to my career. And uh, throughout the summer of 2007 and fall of 2007, it was that. It was it was pretty calm. There was no high-profile high cases in, in the office to speak of. So I was kind of hoping to come in under the radar and retire, you know, early uh, 2008. Uh, but on January 1st, 2008, things changed. And we became involved in a very high-profile case, very important case, involving the abduction and murder of Meredith Hope Emerson. So let's start. Why don't you t- tell us a little bit about uh, about Meredith? 
Mary Thimerson was 24 years old then, uh, a recent graduate of the University of Georgia. She was from uh, a town uh, about an hour and a half from Denver, Colorado, up in the mountains. Uh, and Mary Thimerson was, you know, for all accounts, the all-American girl. She was the, the, the person that most folks who had children would hope that they turned out like Mary. She was just a good person, uh, worked hard in school, had good friends, and had just started on her career after graduation. And uh, her friends would just like her. They, they were all just good people. And after graduation, she moved in with her roommate in a suburb of Atlanta, uh, about 20 miles north of Atlanta, actually, and, and uh, started a career in marketing. And on December 31st, 2007, she and some of her friends decided to go out and celebrate New Year's Eve, which they did. Meredith came home a little bit early and uh, to, to beat the traffic and went to bed and, and uh, woke up the next morning and decided to go hiking. Several months before that, uh, Meredith had uh, adopted a black lab puppy named Ella. So on New Year's morning, she and Ella decided to go hiking up in the mountains of North Georgia and drove to an area uh, in North Georgia to a mountain called Blood Mountain. And there's an approach trail leading from the parking lot of the Blood Mountain uh, Trail up to the summit of Blood Mountain, which intersects with the Appalachian Trail. Uh, the Blood Mountain Approach Trail, also called the Herbert Reese Memorial Trailhead, is probably the most active hiking destination in, in Georgia and the southeast, really, because it's a good day hike up to the summit. Uh, and then back down, you can do you can do a half a day or spend as much time at the summit as you want. And that's uh, where Meredith started that day. She left a note for her roommate on the refrigerator that stated, go on hiking with Ella. And so that morning she did. And so that should have been just a, a, a great day. Um, obviously, it's yes. January. It's a little chilly, but uh, nothing to be concerned about, except, of course, uh, she didn't return. January 1st, and I remember it well, uh, because in the mountains of North Georgia, you know, January can be pretty brutal in terms of weather. Uh, but that day, the day of uh, January 1st, 2008, was a good day. There was bright sunshine, blue skies. The temperature on the mountain was probably 45 to 50 degrees, which is unusual for that time of year. And so it was a good day to go hiking. And, and Meredith and Ella and others, several others, went hiking that day on that trail. But later on that night, uh, the weather conditions really went south. And it, began, it began to snow and the wind was blowing and the temperature dropped well below zero on the mountain. And uh, concerns were that uh, people who were hiking and perhaps lost or injured on the trail might not survive the weather conditions. And in fact, what had happened Meredith didn't go home that night and didn't go to work the following day. 
and her roommate, Julia, was alerted to that, and a family friend was alerted, and she was reported missing. And so the search for Meredith began uh, with uh, the, the local authorities in that particular county and the Forest Service, since it was government land, began to look for an overdue hiker, uh, which is not that uncommon. And, and they, they know the area, and they began to do what they normally do under those circumstances. And there was really no, at that time, sense that, you know, something bad might have happened until uh, one of the uh, hikers that were, was on the trail that day uh, reported that he had come upon an area on the trail that was disturbing to him, where it looked like there might have been a struggle. And near that area, he found some water bottles, a dog leash, uh, and some dog treats, and uh, a, an expandable police baton. And that was unusual because I mean, you really don't see people carrying those things on the trail. And he turned those items into a local store, and then law enforcement in the, in the area was not aware of that. And uh, it appeared to them that this might not be just an overdue hiker, so they requested the GBI in my office, which was responsible for that area, to become involved in the search for narrative, and, and, and we did. And uh, there are certain things that we always do, law enforcement always does in, in those kind of circumstances when there's a missing person. Even though a crime might not have been committed, or at least one that we knew of early on, uh, you flag bank accounts, you flag cell phone records to find out if there's been any activity or recent activity, which we did. And we were told by the bank that there had been no activity uh, during the, the New Year's Day, January 1st. And throughout that week, we were told by the bank that there had been no banking activity, which was the first setback in the investigation because there, in fact, had been uh, attempts uh, to withdraw money from ATMs, uh, both nearby the trailhead and then 60 miles south of the Blood Mountain. And and that concerned us, and, and that concerned also the local authorities, which was the trigger to call us to come in and help. So at this point, um, it's sort of becoming a combination, combination, combination of search hopefully search and rescue, but also uh, possibly a commission of a crime. Uh, so how was the search done um, in the coordination? Uh, did you, were there helicopters? Um, uh, did you set up a command post? How did that work? The parking lot of the uh, trailhead was not big enough to really have a command post or set up any kind of search teams. But a couple of miles down the road, down the mountain, was a state park called Vogel State Park. It's one of the oldest state parks in the state of Georgia. And it has your typical things you would expect out of lake and campsites and cabins and things like that. So we set up our command post at that park. Uh, the investigative command post was set up in a cabin. The search team command post was set up in another large building there at the site. And we began to try to coordinate the search for Meredith and also the investigative effort uh, if a crime has been committed. The, the weather cleared and we were able to get 
helicopters in the air. And, and the, the, the strange thing that, that I learned uh, in this event really was the fact that the hiking community has a, a network of communication, it seems. So we had hundreds and hundreds of people showing up to help search for Meredith that were just hikers. And uh, we had to manage the, the hiker the hiker community there and search teams as well as the investigative effort. We were joined the next day by Meredith's family. Her parents came in and her family friends from Athens, Georgia came and they were staying in the cabin next to Islands. So we, we had to coordinate the search, but also any investigative needs that, that came about as a result of the search. And the, another aspect that happened was the news media began to show up. The Atlanta media markets, television markets, uh, all came with their satellite trucks and some uh, network trucks showed up and they were covering this. So we began, you know, an effort to get the word out that we were looking for Meredith Emerson. And that after we established our tip line, we wanted people to call uh, with information, anybody who had seen Meredith on the trail uh, New Year's Day, to call the tip line and report if they saw anybody near her or anybody trying to interact with her on the trail. And we began to get uh, tips coming in immediately once we went up on the tip line. And we had a call from a guy uh, in Atlanta, and I, I remember the kind of things he said. He said, I know who you're looking for. And uh, he said, you know, you're looking for Gary Michael Hilton. Uh, because some of the descriptions we had gotten from hikers that had seen Meredith was a strange-looking man on the trail that seemed to be following her. Um, he said, I know what you're looking I know who you're looking for. It's, it's Gary Hilton. He lives in a van in the forest, and he used to work for me. The Blood Mountain Trail is a good place to hunt and that you have a huge selection. But it's a bad place to hunt because too many witnesses. Gary Michael Hilton. So he, he, he gave us the identifying data for Gary Hilton. And we immediately pushed his photograph out through the media outlets that were there on site and began to get more information about him and more information from hikers who had seen him with Meredith on the trail that day. So at, at that time, we believed, based on what we were finding out about him, that this was not an overdue hiker and that, and that uh, there was a very good possibility that Meredith had been abducted. So we, we began our investigation. And, and, uh, and you know, my role as the uh, agent in charge of this was to interact with with Meredith's family, her, her parents, who were horrified, as, as you, anybody could expect. And I broke the first rule that I lived by for 30 years at, at the Bureau. Uh, I told them everything that was going on, and that's not the rule, really, uh, in an active investigation. We, we keep some things close to the vest. But in this case, after meeting the Emerson family and their friends, I decided that I had to tell them everything. And I wanted them to hear things from me rather than hear it 
from the news. Uh, so I began interacting with them each day and trying to brief them on what was going on and what information we were finding or lack thereof. And the search for meds began. And uh, throughout the week, we had volunteer searchers from three different states trying to help us find her. And we began to work the criminal leads that we believe uh, were appropriate. We did find out that uh, her bank account had been attempted to be accessed uh, throughout the week. And, and that was our first real setback because we, we were depending on the bank to tell us that, which they didn't. Uh, and then on Thursday, January 3rd, we received information, and we were actually following up on information from Gary Hilton's former employer, the, the, the guy who called and identified who we were looking for, uh, that Gary Hilton had actually called him a couple of hours uh, before our contact with the former employer, which that meant we were two hours behind the eight ball, and, and that was another major setback for us because had we known that real time, I believe to this day we might have a chance to find her. Uh, so we're, we're working our way through it all week. And then on Friday morning, which is January the 4th, uh, an event takes place in an area called Dawson Forest Wildlife Management Area, which is about 65 miles south of the what we believe to be the abduction site on Blood Mountain. Uh, and Gary Hilton has been camping with Meredith in that forest uh, since the abduction. Listen, the reason for killing the girl? Once you've taken someone, you're either going to kill them or you're just going to get caught. It's as simple as that. Gary Michael Hilton. We get a call to the tip line from a lady who is in a grocery store about 80 miles south of the abduction site. And uh, she had seen on the news the coverage of, of what we were doing and looking for Meredith. And we also put pictures of Ella, her dog, up. And uh, the lady says, I, I think I'm looking at the dog that y'all had been looking for in the Emerson case. And she said the dog has walked into the grocery store. So we were able to uh, send agents down there directly. We had some fairly close by. Get the dog. And we knew that Ella had an ID chip in her. And we were able to confirm that that was, in fact, Ella. Uh, and then not long after we confirmed that, we got a call to the tip line. And uh, a lady said, I just got a telephone call from Gary Hilton. And, and she, she said, I've known him for a while. Haven't seen him in years, but I do know him. And she said, she told him, uh, don't you know the world's looking for you? And he hung up on her. Uh, we traced that number very, very quickly, and that happened to be a, a small gas station across from the grocery store where Ella had, had been found. And so, as you can imagine, and everyone can imagine, the uh, police activity in and around that area happened fairly quickly, but there was no sign of, of Gary Hilton. 
And so one thing that, you know, you, you have to do because we know he was there, we, we're looking around, we're fingerprinting the payphone, we're getting, pulling the videotapes there at the store, uh, and we're looking just around the store itself, and we come upon a, a dumpster in the parking lot that we uh, look in and, and find what we had hoped that, you know, we wouldn't. Uh, we found Meredith Emerson's wallet, her identification, her driver's license, uh, bloody clothing, uh, and and we found a, a, a citation, a ticket that had been written to Gary Hilton in, in the National Forest in Florida in December. Uh, and it had blood on it. And we found some men's boots that had blood on it. So we processed that scene. And because... Uh, this location was considerable distance from the abduction site, uh, headed south. We alerted the Metro Atlanta law enforcement agencies to be on the lookout uh, for the vehicle we believed he was traveling in, which was a white van. And uh, it wasn't that much uh, longer until a citizen in, in, in Metro Atlanta called 911 down there and said, I think I'm looking at the man y'all have been looking for all week. Uh, he was at another uh, gas station cleaning out uh, items from the back of his van. And so uh, based on the 911 caller, we were able to have a patrol units go grab him for us. And, and I sent agents down to get him and, and they took him to our headquarters office, which was only about a half hour away from the arrest site and attempted to interview him and and uh, he's he was the only one that i've ever uh, been associated with in, in terms of a defendant that actually read us his miranda rights i mean he was not very pleasant at all and so he invoked his right to a lawyer so we couldn't you know talk with him anymore so we charged him with uh kidnapping with bodily injury and the next day we brought him back to uh, the county where Blood Mountain is located, which was the abduction site, and put him in that jail. And, uh, of course, I had to brief the parents on what we had found. And as everybody can imagine, they were just absolutely horrified. And, uh, but yet we had to continue on because we had him, but we didn't have Meredith. And so I remember on that Saturday morning, uh, we still have search teams out. We're getting information through the tip line that that are pushing us back down toward the, the little restaurant where he used the phone that Thursday night uh, in an area called the Dawson Forest Management Area, Wildlife Management Area. And so we begin to push assets and search teams down there on Saturday. And I remember I was in our investigated cabin and we're sitting around me and some other agents and and other folks and and i told him i said we have to get this man a lawyer and that is not something we normally do uh, or really want to do but uh, the only way we can talk to him is through a lawyer now and the only person who we felt knew where meredith emerson was was gary hilton so uh we were able to get him a lawyer uh the next morning which was sunday the uh, 6th of January and I go up to the jail and I, I, I brief his lawyers and I break the second rule that I hadn't broken in 30 years. Uh, I tell them everything that we know. 
uh, all the evidence we have out of the dumpster, all the, uh, uh, we, 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 by then we had collected the videotapes of all the ATMs that he attempted to use. So we, we knew who we were looking for and I told him everything. And I asked them to go in there and talk to Gary Hilton and, and cause I wanted to know where Meredith was. And after about three hours, they came out and said, uh, asked me if I would call the local prosecutor, who was a friend of mine, uh, and ask if uh, he would consider taking the death penalty off the table. And I said, well, stand right there and let me call him. And I did. And uh, he asked me what I thought. And I said, I think we should uh, because, you know, the family needs closure. And so he agreed. And I told him, uh, you know, it's off the table. And uh, they, they wanted him to sleep on it. So on, on the following day, uh, which is Monday, uh, in the afternoon, uh, we're having a, a fairly large multi-jurisdictional meeting with Florida and North Carolina and the FBI Behavioral Science Group uh, that day in my office. So it was a busy morning. And shortly after lunch, I get a call from the prosecutor and and uh, who said that he's ready to tell us where Meredith is. And uh, so I and, and the other agent who's working the case for me, uh, we drove and it was about a 45 minute drive up from my office to where the jail was, where he was being held. And, and we get him out and, and his lawyers are there and, and he proceeds to tell us very nonchalantly where Meredith is and what had happened to her and what he did to her. And, uh, and that was in the area where we had been shifting resources to search uh, for uh, south of the abduction site. So uh, he, he gave me a very, very, very uh, good description of where she was. And I asked her, uh, I asked him if, uh, if she was intact. And he said, no, she wasn't. And uh, told us that he had decapitated Meredith. And, and therefore we had two different crime scenes. I got her around to a tree, but she wasn't yelling anymore. I said, honey, don't worry. I've got your pin number and card. If I was gonna hurt you, I'd hurt you. Gary Michael Hilton. During the interview with him, uh, he actually pointed on a map uh, where Meredith was, gave directions to where both crime scenes were, where, where we could find her body and then find her head. Uh, and now it's, uh, it's probably five o'clock in the afternoon. And the site that he's describing to us is an hour and a half from where he's currently being housed. So I knew that, you know, it's going to be dark soon. So uh, I told him that we were going to take him with us uh, to the scene to ensure that we could, we could find Meredith. And uh, so we did. We loaded him up in a van and I went, uh, I went to the site just ahead of the van and met with the search teams that were already there. Uh, they had been searching that area all day. And I had a good, uh, I felt like I had a good, idea of where she was and so i i gave them the directions as he gave to me where we could find her body and it was not 
but about 15 minutes until I got a radio call that they had found her. Uh, and we started working that scene. And then he arrived, and uh, as he described the, the second scene, uh, I was not confident at all that I could, I could find that scene without him. So we took him to that area that he described and got him out of the van, marched him down this small little woods road. And it's just it's dark and dreary in the, in the forest. And uh, he, he walked down the road with me and stopped uh, abruptly and said, okay, if you'll turn right and go up the bank, uh, you'll find a, a downed tree. And at one end, there'll be some more of her clothing. And at the other end will be uh, her head covered up with leaves and brush. And we were able to recover her uh, very shortly after that. At, you know, after that, uh, it, I was joined by a longtime friend of mine who was working in another police agency in Georgia. Down here, we have what's called the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Uh, they work uh, state land and, and management areas and their law enforcement. And I'd known this guy named William. He was, I'd known him for years and years. And he went with me into the woods with, uh, to, to recover her at, at that site. And uh, after we recovered her, uh, he remained with her. I told him, I said, you gotta stay here with her. Uh, and I went back to make sure that Gary Hilton was taken away as, just as soon as we could get him away from there, uh, which was done. And then we began to work the scenes. And uh, I, I knew that uh, I, I needed to be in touch with Meredith's parents uh, because I wanted them to hear it from me again uh, rather than hear it on the news. So I called. At that time, they had moved from the cabin to their friend's home in Athens, Georgia. And so I called uh, Peggy Bailey, who was their friend, a uh, very close friend of the family, and I, I called Peggy and asked Peggy if she would let them know that we had found Meredith. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't tell her in that first phone call that anything about the decapitation. So uh, I called back and uh, told Peggy or asked Peggy, you know, please tell them this too. And uh, and you know, obviously that was devastating for them. Uh, and so we began to go about our business at the scenes and uh, we worked uh, up until after midnight and, and we, we recovered uh, the remains, certainly, but we, we still had some work to do the following morning. So we held the scene all night and, uh, and came back the next day and, and finished up. And, you know, this case had been followed very closely not only in the southeast but you know it, there, there was there was some coverage uh in the national networks and so uh, our public information officer scheduled a press conference uh at a, at a local school very near the uh crime scene uh, to, to announce that we had made an arrest and recovered uh, meredith and so I went up there to, to participate in that, and, and we had that. And, uh, and in, in the room were all the reporters that had been with us all week, and, and you could just see the, uh, uh, the devastation in their faces once we uh, described what we had. In your book, 
those days in January, you have a transcript of one of the interviews that you uh, did uh, with um, Hilton. And uh, so you sat across a table from him and, and looked into his eyes. I just can't imagine what that's like. He's a serial killer and, and they're all very narcissistic and, and uh, they think they're the smartest people in the room. And, and in this case, Gary Hilton was, his IQ was in the 140s. So he was intelligent as, as it relates to that. But uh, we had many interviews with him and uh, where he's just all over the board. He even at one point during the, the later interview uh, was giving advice to people who were abducted. Uh, what to do, what to say to their abductor, and how to act. And uh, I mean, he, he is just uh, the best way I can describe Gary Michael Hilton is he is absolutely evil. Uh, you can look to, you can look into his eyes and see nothing but evil. And uh, he, he's kind of proud of that, I think. Um, he actually ordered a copy of my book and had somebody order it and, and send it to him at the prison. And they intercepted it and wouldn't let him have it. So uh, uh, he, he's he's uh, he's a terrible, terrible man. I spent three days with her. We had long talks about everything. I gave her a book to read, Cannibals and Kings. Gary Michael Hilton. He, he described on Friday uh, mid-morning, I believe, uh, something occurred in, in the wildlife management area where he was camping that caused him uh, concern that uh, law enforcement was going, going to be called to assist a motorist who had gotten his truck stuck in the mud. And so things, you know, he I believe he probably panicked a little bit and, and decided that he needed to leave and, and, and he started doing things very quickly. And he admitted to us that uh, he took Meredith down into the forest away from the campsite and chained her to a tree and told her he was going to let her go. Went back to his van and uh, got a tire, tire tool, which is a tool you use to take the lug nuts off if you have a flat tire and a knife and goes back down into the woods. And he described that um, Meredith said, I thought you, you weren't coming back. In other words, to let me go. And then at that point, he, he, uh, he killed her. Uh, there were 12 uh, blows to the head. Each one would have been fatal. And, uh, and then he goes back to his van and he leaves. He takes Ella and leaves and goes down to the, uh, to the gas station and, and uh, near the cro near the grocery store where Ella was found and, and goes about his business. You recount in your book a um, encounter with uh, a lawyer, not, not his public defenders that were hired for him, but a lawyer by the name of uh, Samuel Rail. Tell my listeners about that encounter. Uh, when I went to the jail where he was being housed and met with his public defender lawyers and they were interviewing him and all that after that was over i was packing up to leave and a, another lawyer came in and said he represented gary hilton i said well no you don't uh 
He said, well, I have in the past. He was from Atlanta. He said, I've represented them in the past. I can get him to cooperate. And I said, well, you know, who are you? And, you know, what are you, what are you talking about? And then he proceeded to tell me that several years before, uh, he had uh, become, he, the lawyer, had become interested in making a movie. And uh, that Gary Hilton consulted in the movie. And the movie was about uh, a real estate person in, in Atlanta who had a cabin in the mountains of North Georgia. And he would abduct women from Atlanta bring them to the cabin and then release them in the woods and hunt them down. And, you know, I, I was amazed at this and really amazed that a lawyer, this guy would, would do that. But, uh, he, he claimed to be a prominent lawyer in Atlanta, but, uh, he gave us another insight and, and he actually said, um, that he believed based on what he had heard about our case, that Gary Hilton was kind of acting out what he had consulted, uh, years before uh and i'm trying to remember the name of that deadly run deadly run deadly run and i would i wouldn't let him talk to him uh because i, I didn't you know they were thinking about he was thinking about telling us to, you know where meredith was and i was afraid this guy would get in there and, and you know mess things up and like with most uh serial killers um, the uh, murder of Meredith Emerson was not uh, Mr. Hilton's first um, a crime of this nature, uh, was it? It was a case out of North Carolina that had been uh, investigated back in October of 2007 that we were not aware of, and, and there's really no reason that we would have been. Uh, and it was in a county called Transylvania County, which is near Brevard, North Carolina, uh, and, in, and, and that area is very close to the, what's called the Pisgah National Forest. And it's just a huge forest. And there was a, a couple, both in their 80s, who lived in that area that uh, were very experienced hikers, in fact. Uh, and their names were John and Irene Bryant. Uh, John had actually been a, what's called a true hiker on the Appalachian Trail. And that means he's, he's covered the distance from Georgia to Maine in the past. So he was a very experienced hiker and, and so was Irene. Uh, so they set out for a day hike in the Pisco National Forest in, in late October, 2007. And then they were reported missing by their children who lived in outside the state of North Carolina a couple of weeks later. So the search began for them as the same way that ours did. Uh, and, and it wasn't long until they recovered the body of Irene Bryant, uh, not, not far from where their car was parked. And she, uh, her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. But there was no sign of John. And as the authorities uh, got into that case, they determined that uh, the Bryant's uh, bank account had been accessed uh, in, in a small town in Tennessee, about an hour and a half away from where Irene was found, and it was it was not an it was successful. It was not just an attempt; it was successful. So uh, they were thinking that John actually told the pen, and and we had uh, they collected videotapes at the ATM, and uh, were doing the same thing that we were doing. And their case went cold. Uh, they they didn't find John.
John Bryant. They found a skull in a pelvis, and it's off of Old Murphy Road, and it's on a Forest Service road. And they found the body. So maybe he's no longer missing. Gary Michael Hilton. And then when we were working our case, then they contacted us and shared all that information with us. In December of 2007, uh, down in the Apalachicola National Forest, just outside Tallahassee, Florida, uh, there was another young lady who was reported missing. And uh, as in North Carolina and, and later in Georgia, they started out the same way, uh, searching, uh, bank records, cell phone records, physical search teams on the ground looking for uh, her, and her name was Cheryl Dunlap. And it, it wasn't long until they found her remains in the forest, and she had been decapitated, and her hands had been cut off. And so uh, we began to get the information from those two jurisdictions, and uh, very early on, we all knew that we were looking for the same guy. And uh, as it turned out, uh, Gary Hilton was uh, convicted in Florida for the murder of Cheryl Dunlap and given the death penalty. And, and our case in Georgia uh, was or served as the aggravating circumstances for the death penalty in that case. So even though we, we gave up the death penalty in Georgia, uh, it, it helped to get him the death penalty in Florida. And then later on, uh, Hilton, after he received the death penalty in Florida, he pled guilty to the murder of uh, John and Irene Bryant in North Carolina, and that and that wrapped it up. And he is still on death row in Florida. He's on death row in Florida. His state appeals have run, uh, and now he's starting the federal side of the appeals. And and uh, Florida, Florida and Texas seem to have a fast track to the death chamber, and that's what we're. Uh, that's what we're hoping for now. If they want to spend a million and then another million to get death and then another eight million to defend the death penalty, hey, they can do that. Gary Michael Hilton. In your book, Those Days in January, you um, share a very eerie story about a personal connection to the site where all this happened. Um, can you tell my listeners about that very strange connection? After I graduated high school in this small mountain town, uh, before I went off to college that fall, uh, I had a summer job. And, and the summer job, was uh, in, in the next county over from where I lived and grew up. And it was an area uh, where back in the 1950s, uh, Lockheed Martin and the Department of Defense uh, wanted to develop a, a uh, nuclear rocket, not, not rocket fuel, but fuel that would uh, fuel an aircraft, nuclear fuel for an aircraft. So they developed a, really a base in this area and they had a nuclear reactor set up there and did all kind of research. And, and after they figured out that they couldn't or were not going to be successful to make nuclear jet fuel, 
they started uh, doing research on the effects of radiation on the forest and, and on objects uh, like military jeeps and things like that. And, and they would radiate the area uh, around the reactor site just to try to see the effects if there'd been a nuclear attack on, on the foliage. And so I was just, a, I was 17 and, uh, the, and that base had been closed down and decommissioned. And my job was to uh, take down fencing and for a couple of weeks shovel radioactive dirt. And uh, they, they had railroad tracks there that they would put on rail cars, things to be radiated and pull them up to the reactor site, raise the reactor and, and, uh, and radiate the, the items and then back away on the tracks. And uh, during the search for Meredith, fast forward to the search for Meredith, years, years later, uh, as has happened in other cases, psychics become involved and they, they call and, and they want to give information. And Meredith's father uh, told me one night, you know, at the command area and the command post at the state park that he had actually talked or been contacted by a psychic up in New York and had told him that Meredith would be found near railroad tracks. And uh, I knew there wasn't any railroad tracks near Blood Mountain. And then once Gary Hilton told me that night where Meredith was, uh, in the same area that I had worked as a 17-year-old, you know, years and years ago, I remembered the railroad tracks and, uh, and how very close she was to where those railroad tracks had been years, years ago. So we're talking about a case, a very sad case that is now, of course, 12 years old. Um, what is your... What are your thoughts now, 12 years after the conclusion um, of the case that put away the murderer of Meredith Emerson? It was hard, really, uh, to, to deal with this uh, during and after because uh, I had survived and, and uh, a lot of the agents who worked on this case had survived for years and years and years without getting too close. And uh, we all got too close to this one. And it's hard to, uh, it's hard to recover. And, uh, and, and people look at law enforcement and in and, and these type cases, you know, they, oh, well, they're bulletproof and they're, you know, it's not gonna affect them, but it's important for folks to realize that these cases, not, I can't imagine uh, the, the continuing impact for the family and friends of Meredith Emerson. Uh, but the, the impact of these cases take a toll on those who investigate them too. And I never thought that would happen to me. Uh, you know, I was always bulletproof. And, and uh, this case is, I guess, showing me that I'm really not. That, uh, you know, the, these things can affect you. W one thing that happened after all this, uh, and again, the, uh, her friends were just like Meredith was. I mean, they're all just good, good people. And they formed a nonprofit uh, down here called Right to Hike and began to uh, fundraise to call attention to the hiking community 
and 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 really for the pet community you know people who enjoyed hiking with their pets their dogs and um each year each fall they had what was called ella's run and ella's run was a 5k and and then a one mile walk and they raised money to put uh self portable cell phone towers near trailheads so that hikers you know might be able to if they had their cell phones if, if they had a problem or were injured or lost or something that they could actually have some cell phone service they also called attention uh to hiker safety and and Meredith's roommate, Julia, just an outstanding young lady. And, and she, she would say something that I would agree with that everybody should know when they go hiking, take a friend. Uh, in this case, Gary Hilton said that he was hunting people the day before he was hunting, that he, that he abducted Meredith, and that he didn't act because they were in groups. So your best defense is, is, is take a friend. A couple of years after this case was over and I had retired and, and, and gone away, uh, I got a call from the uh, director of uh, legal services for the GBI who said that they had received an open records request for the crime scene photos in our case. And uh, at that time, autopsy photographs were protected and could not be released uh, to the media or anything like that. Uh, but crime scene photographs were not. And in this case, I, you know, we all felt like that, you know, there was not much difference in our crime scene photos and or autopsy photos. So uh, we rushed in Georgia to pass a law and it, and it was passed within, I think, within 30 days, which is amazing. Uh, and it's called the Meredith Emerson Memorial uh, Act. And uh, it, it now protects certain type crime scene photos from being released to the public or being released to the media. Uh, and, and so that, that was something that good that came out of all this. I think now we're able to protect these types of photographs moving forward. And, and, uh, and, and that was a good thing. Well, John Cagle, I, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us today on Murder Most Foul to share with us a story which couldn't have been easy to tell. Uh, your book is Those Days in January, available online at Amazon and other booksellers. Just Google that and they'll find it. Also, if people want to get in touch with you, your email address is j-a-t-h-o-n at windstream.net. J-A-T-H-O-N at windstream.net. And once again, John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jim. Thank you.